Please be seated. And if you, ha- if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open to Ma- uh, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 will be our text for this morning. Verses 32 through 34, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And hear the word of God read. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This ends the reading of the Word of God. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you needed to be reminded of something? Absolutely. In my situation, Caitlin will say, hey, on such and such a date, we have this appointment or we have this plan. And I say, okay, that's great. And then about a week before that plan has to happen, she will remind me a second time and say, hey, you know on this Friday we have this appointment that we need to be uh, set aside. And I say, great, thank you. And then on that Friday morning, she will remind me a third time. You know, John, that this evening we have such and such a plan. To which I sometimes respond, why didn't you tell me sooner? Don't you know that I have plans today? If this was on the calendar, and she says, it is on the calendar. It's been on the calendar for weeks. Well, reminders are needed in this life. Jesus knew that reminders are needed. And what we have here in this passage, this only these three short verses, is we have Jesus' third reminder to his disciples of what is about to take place in Jerusalem. He predicts and he foretells what is going to happen here in the near future. So I want us to enter into this scene here in verses 32 through 34. And we really need to get a feel and a grasp for the magnitude of what is being stated here. Tensions are high on the road to Jerusalem right now. The Passover is coming. Jesus is there, and he is with his 12 disciples, and there is no doubt a larger crowd that is traveling behind them as they are making their southbound trek to Jerusalem. They are on the east side of the Jordan River. As they are going to travel down, they're going to cross the Jordan, and they're going to enter into Jericho, which is only a day's journey from Jerusalem. They are getting close. And his disciples know it. And he knows it. And the crowd that is with him knows it. It is early spring in the Middle East at this time. Temperatures are rising. The sun is rising earlier and setting later. The days are getting longer as they are making their journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
It was not uncommon in this time to find massive crowds flooding down towards Jerusalem, coming from all different directions to celebrate the Passover, which was a Jewish holiday, a reminder of the faithfulness of God, of God's salvation in delivering his people from the hand of Pharaoh. As the angel of death passed over all the homes that had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And so they are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of God's faithfulness, of God's salvation, of the Passover. On this leg of the journey here, and Mark will record for us, three dialogues that take place. Time would only permit us to consider the first one this morning. But there will be two other dialogues that happen along the road until they enter Jerusalem, which is the triumphal entry in chapter 11. But today is the prophet's prediction. The prophet's prediction. Look again with me here at verse 32. We read that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. This is the picture before us right now. Mark wants us to see, feel, and know this scene. So there they are, traveling along the dusty road down south to Jerusalem. There are three different groups that are described here. There is Jesus, who is ahead of everyone. Then there are the disciples that are kind of lingering behind Jesus. And then there are the others, the larger crowd, even behind them. Let us not skip over the details of verse 32, just so we could get to the point of what Jesus is saying here. No, Mark wants us to understand something very important here in verse 32. And we have to ask the question, why does Mark want his readers, and by virtue of them, us, to know that Jesus is walking ahead of everyone else? Every detail in the scriptures matter. He didn't just put this line in there just to have you just to figure out, okay, there's just this path and these people are walking. No, he wants us to see something very important. It was common practice for the rabbi to walk ahead of his disciples. Well, if Jesus is just doing common practice, Mark doesn't have a need to record that. There's something bigger going on right here. There's something significant. And here's the point. We see a most glorious detail concerning Jesus and his mission by walking ahead of his disciples. What we see here in Jesus is that he is pressing forward. He is going before his followers. We see a driving sense of mission in Jesus that is propelling him forward to Jerusalem. Jesus here is making haste to Jerusalem. I want us to notice here, Jesus is focused. Jesus is driven. Jesus is determined. Now remember, this is the third prediction. He knows what is in store for him. He knows that he's not more than a day or two away from Jerusalem, from the triumphal entry, from the last week of his life on earth. He knows that the cross is ever before him. He knows the suffering that he's about to face. He knows the anguish of his soul. It is being revealed to him in greater measure here. He is feeling the weight of humanity that he is about to bear the sins of his people. 
And he is walking before everyone else. He is not dragging this out. He is not taking the scenic route down to Jerusalem. He's not taking the long way. No, this is the champion of our salvation pressing forward to the cross. And this is why the disciples respond the way they do. Again, look again at your text. He is walking ahead of them. And the, he's talk, Luke, or Mark is talking about the disciples. They were amazed. Why are they amazed? Because they know what lies before. They know what they've been told. One commentator on this passage says concerning Christ and the disciples that his determination to reach Jerusalem with all that he had foretold that was to happen there leaves the disciples bewildered, coming alongside Jesus in amazement. Jesus is moving at a clip that is faster than them. They are trying to keep pace with the Messiah. Jesus is determined the disciples are amazed. And if we think about this scene, so should we. This is why we sing the song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He is pressing forward to the cross. And then there's a third group that we see here that is lingering even behind the twelve. And they are afraid. No doubt whispers have gone around. You know where he's going, right? You know what lies ahead in Jerusalem. He has already foretold that he is going to suffer, that he is going to die. He's gone on the record two times, telling what the struggle will be. Now, unlike me, some people don't need to be reminded multiple times. So the crowd is afraid. So in this one packed verse, verse 32, Mark describes the emotion, the detail, the atmosphere on the road to Jerusalem. It is supposed to be a time of celebration for the Passover. There is a weightiness. There is a, a, a gravity, a gravitas over what is about to take place. The disciples know it. Though they don't understand in full measure, Jesus is feeling the weight himself as they all are pressing on to the death march to Jerusalem. Jesus, well aware of the uneasiness and the tension that's in the air along this travel, the tension that's in the heart of the disciples as they are amazed and, and, and they're, they're grasping why he would be hurrying to die. Jesus feels the own, weight, his own, the own weight upon his own soul because the plan that was written from all eternity, that was, that was concealed in ages past, hidden for the ages, was a now, it was now about to become a reality in time and space. The plan of redemption was set to be accomplished. And in one more, and once more, Jesus looks at his disciples in his kind and caring way. He pulls the 12 in and says, let me tell you once more what's about to happen to me. He gives them even greater detail. This third prediction of Jesus is the greatest detail that he gives concerning what is about to take place in some days following. And so notice here, this is the prophet's prediction telling his disciples what the gospel is. Verse 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Observe, he says, where they are going. They are going to Jerusalem. Everybody goes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits 2,700 feet above sea level. All roads to Jerusalem must go up, even if they are traveling south. They're going up to Jerusalem by way of elevation. He's going to the place of execution. And he refers to himself. Notice again what he says there. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is who is going to suffer. The Son of Man. The divine Son of God. Fully God and fully man. As we even read in our catechism today. Human like us in every way without sin. The one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. In Daniel chapter 7, he is the one who, the son of man who stands before the ancient of days and receives the authority over the cosmos. This is why Matthew ends his gospel with the words of Christ as Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the son of man. This is the one who was with God and was God in the beginning. He is the divine logos. He is is the one who created all things. He is the word of God made flesh who's come to dwell among us. This is where they are going, Jerusalem. This is who is going to suffer, the Son of Man. And then Jesus tells us what is going to happen. And he gives us three things. He says that the Son of Man will be delivered over. It says he will be betrayed. But he won't just be delivered over to anybody, no. He says delivered over, first betrayed, second to chief priests and the scribes. They will judge him. And third, he will be condemned by the world, the Gentiles. So let's unpack these three things that Jesus predicts as the prophet here. First, he says that he will be betrayed by a friend. We even sung it. Betrayed by a traitor's kiss. We know the story. Judas, one of the twelve, who is hearing this at this moment, he is among this group, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to be delivered over. And it's Judas who actually does it. He sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of a slave. To pay for a slave, it's 30 pieces of silver, according to the law of Moses. Exodus 21, 32. We know how this happens in just a few days later. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he comes by night. He's conspired to sell out God. Comes up to him and kisses him on the cheek as a sign of who the authority should and the soldiers should grab. Just the day before, Judas is having a good time with them. Having a meal with them. It's the betrayal of the ages He is betrayed by a friend. Second thing Jesus tells us is that he will be judged by the religious people. The chief priests and the scribes. This is the religious people of the day. These are the ones that should have known better. They know the scriptures. They know the Old Testament. They know the promises of, 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 of the Messiah. They know Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. And they don't, they don't see it. In Mark, just a few chapters later, 14. Verse 60, this is what happens to him. After he's been betrayed by a friend and he's taken before the high priest, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remains silent 
and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And all condemned him as deserving death. He is judged by the religious people. Again, those that should have embraced him hated him. Now, the Jewish people did not have the power to execute. No, they had to deliver Jesus over to the Romans because the Romans had the power of the sword. Jesus had to go over to the Romans to be condemned by the Gentiles. And that's the third thing that Jesus tells us will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He will be condemned by the world. So after the, the, the mockery of a trial before the religious people, and then he's rushed over to the Romans, and they're saying, well, here's the charge. He claims to be God. And Pilate's like, okay, where's that in Roman law? That doesn't deserve death. Let's interrogate him. And they go through, and they're like, there is no fault in this man. He is innocent. He has done no crimes. You guys are arguing about your Jewish customs and, and, and your religion. This is not deserving of capital punishment. And so Pilate's like, this is ridiculous. But Pilate's a coward. And Pilate succumbs to the pressure of the crowds. In chapter 15 of Mark, verses 12 through 15, Pilate before the, before the crowd said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, oh, what a terrible line, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the prophet's prediction, and it came true. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy, that God will raise up one after him, a prophet like him, and to his voice you shall listen to. And if what he says comes true, you should fear him. And he is worthy to be listened to. Jesus fits all the criteria. Jesus predicts exactly what will happen to him. He foretells, and it comes true. But Jesus goes on from here, and not just to, to talk about the uh, generalities of what will happen, he gives us vivid details he gives us, a, gives us a vivid picture of the results of betrayal, of judgment, and condemnation. Look at verse 34. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I want to give you a picture. I want you to see, as we entered the scene on the road, let us walk into the suffering of our Savior. First, he says, they will mock him. Luke twenty-two, sixty-three. 63. When Jesus was taken into custody, they mocked him. They beat him. They blindfolded him. And then they began to strike him with reeds, saying, prophesy. Tell us who hit you. Oh, what a scene. Christian, behold your prophet being mocked. But he wasn't simply mocked. 
He's spit on, Mark 14, 65. After Jesus tells them that he is the Christ, he makes the claim. He says, I am God. I am the Messiah. Throughout Mark, where he says, charge no one to tell people about this, he says, now is the time. And the truth that has been concealed is revealed to all. And so when he says that I am God, I am the Christ, they should have fallen on their faces before him. Instead, they spit in his face. A most degrading act. Yet this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah said this was going to happen. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill every prophecy. Isaiah 56. I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid my fate. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. All the power of heaven and earth resides in Christ. And he lets them spit on him. Oh, what meekness and majesty. Christian, behold your God as he is spit on. That isn't enough. He is not only mocked and spit on, but he says that they will flog him. After the religious crowd have, has done what they wanted to do with him and condemning him of death and sending him over to the merciless Romans, the tyrants that they are, it's their turn. Pilate finds no fault in him, but Christ was robbed of human justice so that he could satisfy the justice of heaven. In Mark 15, 17, we are told that he stands before a battalion, 600 Roman soldiers. He has already been whacked and spit on and mocked and stayed up all night through this mockery of a trial. And then they drag him over before 600 Romans. And they have no care for him. They know nothing about the Jewish laws and customs. They think he's some renegade causing trouble in Jerusalem. They have no sympathy for this, in their minds, radicalized Jew. So in front of 600 Roman soldiers, Jesus is taken. They strip him down of his garments. They put a purple robe on him, a sign of royalty. Their turn to mock him. They twist together the crown of thorns because every king deserves a crown, right? And they plant it into his skull. And they begin to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Is this not the son of God? And then they begin to strike him and whip him blow after blow across the back, across the head. And the one that has all power in heaven on earth to stop it endures the suffering. He allows his creatures to inflict this upon him. By his very word, he spoke their lives into existence. Christian, behold your king being flogged. And then to add to all of that and kill him. They strip him back out of his royal garments. They put a cross beam upon his back and they tell him to march. To the place of the skull, to Golgotha. To the place of execution. No regard for this man. Let's hurry up and execute him. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he is silent. 
As the beam is on his back and he continues the death march, where are the disciples? They have dispersed. There he is alone, carrying his cross, King of kings and Lord of lords. And they take him. And they attach the cross beam to the upright. And they stretch out his hands. And they take the nails. And they drive them through his hands on one side. On the other. They take his feet. They cross his feet. They drive the nails through his feet. And they erect him. And they put a sign over that says, Behold the king of the Jews as a mockery to all. And there he is, the Son of God, the Son of Man, hanging naked on a cross, ashamed. Here's the one who healed many. We've gone through it in Mark. He has touched the eyes of the blind and they see. To the multitudes that have no food, he feeds them. With the, he creates matter out of nothing. To the, to the ones that are fearful, he calms them. He strengthened the faith. There he hangs on a cross alone. Betrayed by a friend. Sold for the price of a slave. Condemned and ju judged by religious people. Condemned by the world. Christian, behold your Savior. Being killed. Naked. Shamed. A curse, as it is written, curses every man who hangs on a tree. Oh, dear listener, do you see him there, hanging in the anguish of his soul? The innocent being treated as the guilty. There was no deceit in his mouth, no crime could be found. He's bleeding, he's crying. He's suffering in this moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is an offense to Jews, and he is a fool to Gentiles. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But at this moment here, and we think about the prophet's prediction, we must ask the serious question that lays before us. What can a man hanging on a tree 2,000 years ago in Palestine do for me? What difference does this suffering man who claimed to be God make in my life? If we do not draw this connection, all of this is foolishness. And I am wasting my time, and you are wasting your time. Because at this moment, as Christ is hanging upon the tree, and he is suffering... He is doing in this moment what I cannot do and what you cannot do. This is why Isaiah tells us, he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. By his wounds, I am healed. Again, Paul would say that he made peace through the blood of the cross. He wasn't crushed just for my iniquities, my transgressions, and my sins for all who would come to him by faith. So we have to ask then, what can that one man do? And the answer is this, he can do what all humanity combined cannot do. He is able to discharge the debt of sinners and be alive today to speak about it.
Jesus hangs upon the cross, and it's not because Romans crucified him and Jews judged him and condemned him. He hangs upon the cross because it pleased God to crush him. Because he was offering up himself in this moment as a sacrifice to the Father for sinners. He is bearing the penalty for all of the sins of everyone who will come to him. It is not just an average execution. That's what was happening on both sides of him. But no, in the center cross is the man who is making restitution for God. It is the dying substitute who is paying a penalty for sinners. Who is satisfying the wrath of God that we sung here. Who is exhausting the wrath of God against sin as it is being poured upon him. This is why your Savior must be fully God. Because only God can bear God's wrath. And he must be fully man so that he identifies and dies the sinner's death though he's done no sin. For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish this. Prayers and piety are no replacement for what is taking place at this moment on the cross 2,000 years ago. Blood had to be shed. Only God could do it. God became a man to pay for the sins of his people. Satisfying justice. Jesus on the cross takes the cup, the wine of the fury of the wrath of God, and he drinks it, and he drinks it, and he drinks every last drop. And once Jesus had exhausted the wrath of God, Against sin, Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath, turns it over, and says, it is finished. Paid in full. Christian, you know what this means? That if Jesus drank all of God's wrath, there is none left for you. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There should be a thousand exclamation points after that sentence. <laughs> and then the suffering Savior gives up his spirit and he dies. Buried in a borrowed tomb. Oh, thank you for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who finally got it. They were willing to identify with a crucified Messiah. They were willing, while the other 12 or 11 were not, John stood back from a distance, but these two brothers said, we will take the body. We will bury him in a rich man's tomb to fulfill prophecy. Not knowing that they were doing it is the plan of God from all eternity. Buried on a Friday, oh, but Sunday came. On that Sunday morning, as Jesus predicted here in verse 34, after three days, he will rise. You know, if you irritate enough people, you can predict that they won't like you. I've done it a few times. You might even make people so mad that they want to kill you. You might. That's fine. You might be able to predict that would happen, and it might come true. You are something out of this world if you can predict that people will kill you and that you will come back and talk about it. <laughs> to predict a resurrection, I don't have words for that. So let us not lose sight. Yes, in the suffering, we see our Savior. We see our 
God dying for us. He said he was going to do that, and he said he was going to rise again. And it happened. That's radical. Alive now forevermore. So Christian, behold your victor in the resurrection with his foot on the head of the serpent. Crushed. Penalty paid for. Victory achieved. Genesis 3.15 fulfilled. Redemption accomplished. Heaven promised. Hope in this life and in the life to come. This is the gospel. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And this is what I have delivered to you this morning. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. This is the prophet's prediction. And this is what the Gospel is. So why is it important? Why is the Gospel important? Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Because, simply put, brothers and sisters, everyone who's sitting here right now and everybody who's driving down Post Road right now and everybody who is alive right now needs this truth, needs the gospel. Why is the gospel important? Because I need rescue. I need restoration. I need redemption. I need regeneration. I need to be born again. I need to be renewed in my fellowship with God because in and of myself, my sin has created a divide between me and God. And I am to blame. My original sin in Adam, I am guilty. The sins that I commit, I am guilty. And there is a great divide between me and God. And I can't bridge that divide. All of my righteousness would be like jumping off of this platform and trying to reach Ed in the back. I can't make it no matter how fast I run, no matter how hard I try. I need something better. I need a bridge. I need a cross to bridge the great divide. That I might be united to God. Simply put this way, sin kills, the gospel saves. So let me give you a few points of why this is important. First, the gospel saves. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Second, the gospel unites. God forms a people who have been saved by Jesus Christ and unites them together in a community. You know what we call that? The church. It's not just a bunch of gathering of people that come together and say, hey, I like this place better than that place. No, the gospel unites us as the body of Christ here. Third, the gospel speaks peace. When our conscience condemns us, we remember that God is greater and that he knows everything. We sing it, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Here's one. There's no greater song to sing than the gospel. Thank you for Christians through the last 2,000 years who have been singing the gospel and that we get to sing the gospel. Here's The gospel gives hope. The world is full of chaos. Turn the news on, turn it off. 
Look outside. Look within. You're going to find chaos. No, the gospel gives us hope. It is a message of hope for the hopeless. It is a message of peace for those that are in crisis. It is life for the dead. It is joy for all who will come. There is no greater joy than knowing Jesus Christ, sins forgiven. This is why we also sing, my heart is filled with thankfulness. So, a few points of application. Have you received this gospel? You may have heard of Jesus. You may have spent your life in the church. Do you know him? Have you repented of your sins? Have you seen that suffering Savior through the eye of faith looking to Christ upon that cross? And have you said, that is my Savior bearing my sins, my substitute, my hope in life and death? Are you trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? If you are not, it does not matter how often you attend, how much money you give, how many prayer meetings you go to, you must be reconciled to God through Christ. That is the only hope that you have in life and death. The suffering of Jesus Christ is not merely an emotional story to stir your heart, but it is to set your heart aflame with a love for God to bring you back to Him. Christ this day calls you, listener, this hour, this moment, to trust in Him, to give yourself to Him, to trust His perfect work on behalf of sinners. You must do something with the gospel. It is not intellectual knowledge. You must apply this gospel in the spirit that causes us to have new life, applies and gives us faith that we might believe. So let me ask you, will you trust in Christ if you are not? Will you give your life to Him? Will you turn from your sins in faith and lay hold of Jesus? Maybe you are one who has been burned by others. I understand. Maybe you struggle with trust. Maybe you've been betrayed by someone close to you. Maybe you've even been betrayed by a friend. There is a Savior who identifies with you. Maybe you have felt the sting of rejection from religious people because you don't fit a mold. Some of the most harsh people I've ever met call themselves Christians. There's a Savior who felt that too. Maybe you've been judged and rejected by the world. There's a Savior who has walked that road too. And He invites all, every one of you this day to come. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. His invitation is for all who will come. Christian, are you not thankful for this gospel? For Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, who lives this day to make intercession for his people. Oh, you need not fear. Jesus prays for you. And Jesus, the work that was started in you, Jesus in God will see it finished. Remember this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It is not your hold upon the gospel that keeps you. It is the God of the gospel who keeps you. Maybe you are weary this morning. Let me encourage you, draw near to Christ. Draw near to him. With the eye of faith, 
I pray that you are reminded how much God loves you as you behold Christ upon the cross. Remember this, Jesus loves you so much that he was walking ahead of everybody on the road to Jerusalem to accomplish your salvation through his suffering. So wherever you are this morning, we all can draw near to Christ who welcomes sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who welcomes sinners to himself. Lord, we pray that we would take this truth, that it would be planted deep within us. We would love Christ, serve him. We would believe, we would trust. Change our hearts, O oh God, we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen.